and welcome to Live Oak Novel Review. This is episode 11. We start chapter 6 in this episode, seeing Jason, Kadeem's estranged father's perspective. He is homeless and an addict, and the chapter begins with him asking three white college students for money. Blatantly, they refuse to give him any money and reveal that they are not some hayseeds from out of town, but are natives of Philadelphia too. The one student... George's retort for Jason to work hard brings back Jason's memories of childhood. He, like Kadeem, grew up in an unstable environment with absent parents and used basketball as an outlet for his frustrations. In this section, my intention is to show the immense difficulties Jason had to work through and his mindset of never accepting his experience as normal and trying his best to change his situation. There is that initial prejudice that Jason is currently a bum and has always been one. Deep down, he is a man of immense dignity. But, like other characters, he is caught in this spiral that he can't break free from. Inspiration. I thought it was important to give many of the important people in Kadeem Palmer's life their moment. Many have direct and indirect influence on him, or may have an intersecting path later on. Jason is certainly that. In some ways, he's almost like a ghost to Kadeem, though their minimal relationship is not mentioned in too much detail yet. I think back to the idea of the world swallowing a person up. That has certainly happened to Jason, um, and is a fate that Kadeem could have too if we're seeing familiar patterns repeating. However, the idea I thought was interesting in the premise that Kadeem would assume his father is someplace far away, where he is relatively close by. Yet, through the proximity, Jason is not near. He's caught in his own world, and the thought of the two regaining their relationship seems to be planets away. Craft and structure. I begin this chapter with the three white college students and their cold dismissal of Jason. The next chapter will then move to the three's perspective. I found it an interesting contrast, these three feeling their annoyance towards Jason and perceived threat of the city, whereas their issues are minuscule in comparison to Jason. The novel, I believe, is ultimately about empathy. In general, it is something I always strive to develop in my writing. It is somewhat basic in a sense, but you can see a scene where a person is annoyed and dismisses a homeless person, and the general lack of compassion in that. But hopefully it holds a deeper meaning uh, in this point of the story, as we have seen his son Kadeem, Shayla, and the hardships that Jason has had to endure to this point of asking three for money, something he knows he can only achieve by appealing to their sense of emotion or pathos. Chapter 6. There were three of them sitting on the cherry-colored stone wall. One of them had blonde, shaggy hair and was slightly overweight. He had a psychedelic, kaleidoscope-like band t-shirt, and he was smoking a cigarette. The other was a slightly taller brunette with a teal backpack and smoking as well. The third had buzzed hair and looked nearly bald. He was muscular and had a thick neck like some quarterbacks do. 
Opposed to his tough exterior was a doe-like face, his eyes darting back and forth in agitation. Jason thought about the best tactic to use, perhaps the bus fare anecdote, perhaps the one about needing money for his kids, maybe even the truth or a version of the truth these white college kids could understand. He had not bathed in about four days and he was conscious of his smell. His beard was long and felt coarse against his face. There was a slight pain in his calf, a bruise or hamstring pull that he could not recall. He had a vision of a blade being pulled on him. Was the leg injury from bounding away from that threat? There was a staircase he hurried down. The steps were rickety and the passage was narrow and he nearly hit his head on the downsloping ceiling. Had he run from the cops in the last few days? That was entirely possible, though he could not pinpoint any specifics. He told himself that was it. He would scrounge together a few dollars and then he would get himself together. Deeper down, he knew that wasn't going to happen, though he liked imagining the narrative in his head. He was down but poised for a comeback. Like Coach said, just chip away. Don't get overwhelmed with how much you're down. Just focus on getting that next basket. Don't worry about not having a home or job or family. Just get a few dollars and go from there. Survive and keep rolling until you're ready to do more. So he took a deep breath, spoke quietly to himself to check that he was sound of mind, and approached the three young white men. Hi, fellas. How are we doing today? He asked. The blonde looked at the ground, the brunette looked at the blonde, and the one with the buzz hair finally spoke. We're fine. How about yourself? He said in a deep tone of voice and puffed his chest out slightly. He was a man with a small frame, but looked like he had diligently added muscle mass over the years, though he was very likely a very light individual. He was scared of something. That's all Jason could figure. Are you college students? He asked. Yeah, we go here, the buzzed hair one answered begrudgingly, seeming to straighten his shoulders. He looked over to his friends, clearly trying to end the conversation. Jason persisted. You boys must be a major hit with the ladies. We do all right, the brunette said and beamed slightly. I bet you do. Listen, I won't take up much of your time, but look, we don't have any money, the buzzed hair one cut in. This irritated Jason, but he continued. No, it's not like that. You see, I have to get home to watch my little girl. Her mom has got to work in about an hour and I have to get to Fernrack. I just started a new job and I don't get paid till Friday. If you fellas could, dude, we said we don't have money, the buzzed hair one said. Quit wasting our time with your, with your sob story. If you worked half as hard at getting a job, George, chill, the brunette added. Okay, sorry, but we're not giving you anything. We're not a bunch of bleeding heart hayseeds. We're from Philly too. Okay, what about just for a beer? Come on, man to man, Jason added with a smile. Fuck off, George said, and they walked away. He had to give it to them slightly. They were not to be swayed. They were proud and not being persuaded and not being duped. He had to admit that was what he was doing. It was a sales pitch to get some money. He did need it, likely more than them college kids going to some game, concert, or frat party, but he did feel victorious when he did manipulate someone into giving him money with one of his sad tales. It was something like a game. How could he maneuver pieces into his favor? They were not having it, and though he was irritated, they knew the con was coming, and they were prepared. It was funny how there were all these wide-eyed white people in the middle of the ghetto, carrying around $200 textbooks and sipping iced coffees, and yet doing their best to carry themselves as if they belonged. Those people were more satisfying to manipulate. You could see this look of genuine consternation on their faces when you told them a fabricated story about losing your job, or trying to feed your family, and so on. They bought it and thought they were genuinely doing you this kindness. In all actuality, it may be one of the few times in their lives when they would have this genuine belief before they got executive jobs and were either far removed from the city or came down to the city for work and then scurried home to the suburbs as soon as they were done. 
By that time, they'd be too consumed in making money and supporting themselves and their family to remember there were still bums like him on the street. And there were people enslaved to heroin or alcohol and other people who did work their asses off but could barely make enough money to survive. Yes, those white college kids would soon forget all of that and boast about going to this tough school in the city to their bosses of a corporation that continued to consume and consume. Yet these white boys from the city were different. They didn't have this moral pang when you asked them for money. They were pissed because you mistook them for an outsider, another visiting suburban white kid. Their families were more blue collar and they were incensed that they didn't work like their moms and dads did. Many still going to private school, though they'd rather you just see them as fellow Philadelphians. They were edged because they couldn't comprehend this difference and saw themselves as having no other advantage. So they would never give him money because they were trying to teach him a lesson to work for it. They didn't know how he studied every night to keep his grades up in high school to stay on the basketball team and earn a scholarship to a D3 school, nor how he got a job that summer to pay for his kids' groceries and checkups and work nights and weekends up Westchester to send money home. Then when he came home during that one summer and Shayla's parents were distraught because they hadn't heard from her in a month, and he went to every bar and shady locale in North Philadelphia until he found her passed out in a tent on Allegheny and drove her to the ER. They didn't know how he snapped two ligaments in his ankle while playing transition defense and got so far behind in school and spaced out on painkillers that he was out of the idyllic suburban university in no time and back on the streets, shooting dope because it was much cheaper and hanging his head in shame. What made him despair was that at one time he was very competitive. He knew he was born into an unfair situation and was not deterred. If anything, he embraced having two absent parents, a dad who was, a, who was straight gone and a mom on and off dope. He never knew this upbringing was as normal or how it was. He knew that there was an injustice in a little boy not really having parents and relying on his older sisters, Emmy and Rosalie, to get him food when they could and shuffle from relatives and friends' homes, even a month in an empty house on 24th Street. In his youth, it was like a sign of being tough, constant mountains that he had to climb over, proud that many people had it easier than him, yet he never whined and continuously found ways to survive. Not to say he didn't get down because there were moments when everything rushed up on him like a fever dream, rapid fire hidden memories of abuses and anger in his helplessness, like using all of your might to swim to the surface, but you remain drowning in the water or winding up to knock someone out and your fist lightly grazing your opponent's face. In those moments, he would just go to the park and play ball until nearly the morning. He was tall and slender and had quick reflexes, his athleticism born from his years of being in this constant state of survival, looking over his shoulder for cops and criminals and not afforded the luxury of eating beyond his fill. He gained respect on the court and started to become familiar with some of the drug dealers and hustlers in the neighborhood. They would tempt him with dope or to work with them, but he always politely declined. Other kids, maybe ones in a similar vagabond situations, the dealers may have given a rough time to and possibly forced to be drug runners or spotters. But they liked him for how he played ball and understood when he said no. One of the dealers was Unky. He always had a different fitted baseball cap on and wore a jean jacket with venom from the comics sprayed on the back and sometimes called himself the symbiote, as in he would be on you if you crossed him the wrong way. Whenever Jason would make a jumper, Unky would always shout, Wet, super soaker, super soaker. Anki and his crew would be posted up by the chain link fence, just smoking and commenting on the games all night long. When the lights went off at Live Oak, Anki's boys Ace and Titus would pull their cars up and shine their headlights on the court. Anki's little brother Trey would play every night and soon became Jason's biggest competition. He wasn't as tall as Jason, but Trey was quick and could do anything with the ball. 
He got the nickname Yo-Yo because of how tightly the ball stayed with him, like it was attached to his hand by a string. The two would have their bouts when playing each other on the court, a lot of shoving and cursing, but they soon became good friends. Yo-Yo lived with Anki, and for how intimidating Anki was, he made sure Yo had breakfast each morning and made him go to school. When child services found Jason, he too ended up joining Yo at the same school. The two were often lethargic in school until counselors cracked the code that they were playing basketball every night at Live Oak. Jason's sisters and Anki immediately put a stop to all-night basketball when school found out, and the two were signed up for rec ball. It was an adjustment to play organized basketball, but their talent was soon honed and they thrived in the league. Their coach was a retired cop named Mr. Pierce with big caramel-tinted glasses who would always wear Hawaiian t-shirts and white pleated slacks. Jason was wary of Mr. Pierce because he was gruff, and somewhere in his mind, he was told to be afraid of white people and cops. However, Pierce knew the game well and worked with Jason tirelessly on improving his shooting mechanics, protecting the ball, and not panicking in pressure situations. Pierce would also encourage Jason about how much potential he had and the idea of not just being a student of basketball, but a student of life. Jason recalled Pierce saying, sports are wonderful because they're a microcosm of life. You always have an opponent, someone trying to stop you from your goal, but you also have teammates. Most of all, you have your belief in yourself. You'll never regret hard work. Put the most energy in everything you do and strive to do it well. That starts in the morning and in school, at practice and in games. Try to always be your best and you will never lose, even if sometimes you do. So he tried hard in school and made honor roll every semester. His mom was in recovery and he was able to see her when she visited twice a week. They were living with their great aunt Martha, who was over 80 years old, but was certainly spry enough to leap from her old armchair if he backtalked her or arrived home after curfew. This was always more comical than threatening, but she had this loneliness and sweetness about her that made you obey and not want to disappoint her. Yo was missing from school for about two weeks after his brother Unki was killed, and when he returned, he said that he was now in a foster home. This all certainly was not normal, hopping from one home to another and feeling like no one cared about you in the world. Maybe this became normal for other people, but Jason tried to fight off this normalcy with everything he had. It was a big dream, not yet fully formed, but it was there. He would get out of all of this and then have a normal life, a wife, a big house, kids, and a big shot job. He'd even take Yo and his sisters, and if his aunt was still alive, he'd take her with him too. He continued to play basketball and do well in school, and girls started to like him. He had a good group of basketball friends, and his sisters began bringing in extra money with their part-time jobs. Emmy was practicing for the SATs and visiting all of these city colleges. Rosalie was doing some boy chasing, but still maintained a good GPA. The reads weren't perfect, but they were on the upswing, even if Aunt Martha had some health issues from time to time. In between doctor's visits, she still religiously watched her Wheel of Fortune every night and soap operas and judge shows during the day. With all of this progress, it was hard for Jason not to feel sorry for Yo-Yo. He was having a bad time at the foster house, that was all he would say, and he had this odd odor which smelled like a mixture of Lysol and manure. He was apathetic in class and listless toward his former passions, such as talking about sports or girls. When Jason would bring up the previous night's Sixers game, Yo would nod his head and just respond in variations of, yeah, good game, when he would have previously broken down nearly every player on the court and questioned the coach's decisions. One day, he grew tired of faking his way through the conversation and just admitted his foster family didn't watch TV. After a while, he lost interest in playing basketball as well and started to fall asleep in class, like years ago when they stayed up all night playing basketball. Thank you so much for your continued support. 
In the next episode, we will conclude Chapter 6. Please follow on Instagram at Matthew Glasgow Author and visit Amazon for reading options. Until next time.